In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammie and Sandy. Taylor Adams is our guest this week on Money Tales. Taylor grew up in the fifth generation of an entrepreneurial, enterprising family. The first chapter of his life was about reconciling his own personal ambition within the context of business and his family. Taylor talks to us about the professional anxiety that he felt at that time. He thought to be loved and respected, he had to be as successful or more successful than his father, even though that mandate was never communicated to him. This led Taylor down a pathway of equating the idea of success with achievement and the acquisition of property, power, and prestige. After much self-reflection and work, Taylor realized that success and money are simply byproducts of value creation. And for him, value creation is generated by being of service to others. The current chapter of Taylor's life is all about where he can find purpose beyond himself. Taylor is an investment entrepreneur and innovator who discovered a passion for human transformation while working within his own multi-generational family office. Taylor's philosophy combines investment management and philanthropic strategies with entrepreneurship and talent development. His goal is to promote a culture of multi-generational value creation rather than value consumption. Here are three key Money Tales conversation topics Taylor hits on in this conversation. First, he cautions that multi-generational family stewardship as a virtue can be misguiding. Taylor thinks that only caring about stewarding the past can prevent rising generations of the family from envisioning a future that's more abundant than what exists today. Second, how Taylor encourages rising generations of a family to creatively destruct the paradigm that got the family to where it is now. This will empower emerging leaders in the family to take the knowledge and capabilities that exist in the family today and build something new and more relevant rather than risking obsolescence. And third, how common approaches to multi-generational family governance force family members to collaborate and make decisions together in ways that may create conflict. Taylor believes the antidote to this is to prioritize individual autonomy and create an environment of decentralized value creation and voluntary cooperation. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now, onto our conversation with Taylor Adams. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Money Tales podcast. I'm Cami Doder. And I'm Sandy Breaker. Cami, as you know, my family and I had to make an emergency trip to the Midwest last week for a family funeral, which was very sad. And I have never in my life had to buy plane tickets at the last minute for four people. I was aghast at the cost 
But of course, the reason for the travel really meant that money didn't play a role in any of the decisions we were making. But what I was really pleased about was that our family has set aside emergency funds. We talk about that with clients all the time. It's a very normal idea in the concept of financial planning of always having some liquidity off to the side in case an emergency happens. That made it really easy to just say, yep, let's buy these tickets, let's move on. I've never had to put the cash reserve into play like I did last week. So I just wanted to share. It's convenient. It works. It sounds like it was something that gave you relief that you had money set aside. It was there for these occasions. We had so many things going through our mind and just wanted to be close to family and get there as soon as we can. It was nice not to have to worry about, gosh, how are we going to pay for this? There's just money sitting off to the side, ready to go. It was there and it was for such a purpose. That's so important. Thanks, Sandy, for sharing. It's my pleasure to now transition to our conversation with our guest today. Welcome, Taylor Adams, to the Money Tales podcast. Hi, Taylor. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Us too. Would you introduce yourself and in doing so, provide a couple pivotal moments that have taken place in your life that really impacted who you are today? A big part of my story is the fact that I come from an entrepreneurial enterprising family. And the story of our legacy goes back generations. I'm a fifth generation family member. We have a family office based in Los Angeles that was formalized in 1962. So a big part of my story is growing up in a business family and just being surrounded by entrepreneurship and risk-taking and value creation. Part of my story is that I've always been a dreamer with my head in the clouds. So I think I was born with entrepreneurial genes which actually weren't helpful for me being a good student because <laughs> I only paid attention to and engaged in things that I found incredibly meaningful. And so growing up, there was always a sense of not belonging in a way or not fitting in. And growing up in a family that has a legacy of doing significant things in business was certainly challenging for me because I think it's human nature for individuals to need their environment to reflect back that they exist and they have value. I call that value reflection. It's a survival imperative for humans. And when you grow up in an environment that's relatively robust and abundant, it can be challenging to figure out how to engineer those value reflections, figuring out where I can actually make a contribution and I can create value. And so the first chapter of my life was really about reconciling my own personal ambition within the context of business and my family. And that was definitely challenging, created so much professional anxiety for me, which I had to find ways to cope with and medicate in a way. What I've learned now in this chapter of my life is reflecting back, I can see that I internalized this mandate that in order for me to be loved and respected, I had to be as successful or more successful than my father and kind of continue that legacy of success in business. Even though that made it doesn't exist and it was never communicated to me, I found it easy to internalize that. Voiced it on yourself. That definitely created a lot of challenges because that creates the dynamic of, well, whatever I do, it has to be big. And when I was younger, I was naive and didn't understand that anything that is big didn't start as big. So I had this assumption that whatever I do, it can't be small. That created a lot of challenges in my childhood and early career. It kind of led me down a pathway of coupling this idea of success with achievement and the acquisition of property, power, and prestige. So I would say the first chapter of my life was really about pursuing what do I have to do? What do I have to create in order to achieve the things that signal that I've been successful? And that tends to look like a pathway of hedonism in a way. And then at 26 was the mark of the next chapter of my life where I just realized that journey isn't productive and doesn't work. 
in that year, I actually decided to get a life coach. I'm a big believer in coaching and living in active consultation with people. And that coach had me read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. That book just snapped something for me where I had the realization that the meaning of life is to find the meaning of life. And I realized that success and money is actually simply a byproduct of value creation. And value creation is generated by being of service to others. So the second chapter of my life was really about exploring what I call my directionality of purpose. Who are the people that I'm going to serve? How am I going to create more of them? And how do I capture that value? So that directionality of purpose is self-sustaining and compounding. In this third chapter of my life, it's really about where can I find purpose beyond myself? Because I think directionality of purpose and really feeling like I have a vision for my future is empowering, but it's even more empowering when it's no longer about me and it's about something that's bigger than me. So those are the three chapters that I would say kind of define my journey and the threads throughout those have been entrepreneurship and finding ways to be of service to others. I'll share that my professional journey is I've always, even through my childhood summer internship at different family businesses, and then after college joining family businesses. So started off doing direct private equity, then transitioned into real estate, then spent some time doing more administrative functions within the family office itself. The same time of the transition, the Victor Frankel, you know, pursuit of meaning transition, I pivoted out and decided to focus on my real passion, which is irrigation entrepreneurship. And then naively started my first venture fund and then realized that I have an innate ability to coach not only entrepreneurs, but other families and individuals who want to get into entrepreneurship and venture capital. And now I work on generally this broad bucket of, you can call it like family office strategies, the family office formation and investment entrepreneurship. I want to read the fourth chapter, but I'm not going to jump ahead. I don't know what the fourth chapter is. I can't wait to read it myself. It was a really excellent introduction, and I'm curious if we can go back in time growing up in this entrepreneurial family before you're feeling the pressures, but the stories that are being shared and you're seeing happening around you, I'm super curious if you were an enterprising kid, where did your entrepreneurial venture start? I have this innate ability to observe the environment and be like, why does that work that way? And there should be a better way for that. And so I'd always be like in class, just scribbling ideas. And there were oftentimes I would actually go have an idea of something that should be changed at the school and go to the principal's office and pitch the idea. And he was really receptive to that. He was an incredible person and, and someone I continue to look up to and had a big bark on me. One interesting story is when I was, I think it was about 13 years old, my family acquired a aftermarket automotive manufacturing company. They manufactured superchargers for cars. And I just thought it was the coolest thing ever because all of a sudden there were cool cars around and I was super into it. And I remember one night at dinner, I told my father, this company needs to advertise on the radio because if everybody knew that superchargers existed and they can bolt it onto their engine to make their car go faster, everyone would want one. And the correct response that my father probably should have made to that was explaining why this is actually a very niche market and mass market advertising probably isn't the right approach. But that's not what he said. He said, okay, go put a commercial on the radio. And so I was like, what? Really taken back. And he's like, yeah, I'll drive you to the radio station. I'll pay for the commercial. A week later, I'm 13 years old, put on a suit and walk into like this conference room at a radio station in LA and end up producing a radio commercial. And so two weeks after that, I'm on the school bus going to school, listening to the radio on my Walkman. And then I hear a radio commercial come on the air that I produced. And that was a really pivotal moment for me because it's when I realized, oh, 
damn, I can actually do stuff. I can influence the environment and make things happen. And so growing up in that environment, I think was really powerful. Regardless of how my parents decided to raise me or how me and my wife decide the strategies that we implement to raise our kids, the reality is that emulation just is so powerful that it really going to take hold of that. And thankfully I had an incredible entrepreneur in my father to emulate. And the reality is like kids just emulate and do what their parents do. I'm really grateful that I had the opportunity to observe all of those dynamics. What a great lesson he taught you in addition to the modeling he was doing. I don't think it was strategic. He was just doing a thing. He wasn't trying to teach you a lesson? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I don't think he had a master plan. That's my point. He was just moving with the world. Tell us more about being a fifth generation family member in an entrepreneurial family. In multi-generational enterprising families, there's this unspoken expectation that it's a family business, so family members will be involved. And what I found is that there's a lot of paradoxical outcomes with respect to the strategies that are implemented to accomplish that. And oftentimes when a next gen is starting their professional journey and exploring what their role might be, the family or the business ends up saying, oh, let's bring Johnny or Sally inside and see where they fit in. That's like a mandate that you never see anywhere else in business. Let's just show this person the ropes and see where they align and create value. Because they're part of the family and it's just expected that there's a role that they can play. Well, there's an expectation of stewardship. You're going to have a responsibility to make sure that you carry forward what was created in the past and don't screw that up. The challenge I had is that I want to build things. I want to create things. I don't want to be a steward of things that already exist. I think this idea of stewardship as a virtue is actually a little bit misguided because I think that humans only care about stewarding the past when they can't envision a future for themselves that's more abundant than what already exists. Trying to find my place within family business was challenging because the opportunities that you have is to figure out where you fit in with respect to existing process flows. And generally the mandate isn't come in here and disrupt stuff, come in here and create new things. And I think in the future, I think families will realize that the most powerful generational mandate is actually one that's weirdly created destruction. So like, what if a family enterprise told rising generation, hey, figure out how to disrupt that. Because if you don't disrupt us, the market will. And I think that's a much more empowering multi-generational mandate. It empowers emerging leaders to figure out what is the next version of what my family's built? How can I take the knowledge and capabilities that already exist and compound uh, value on top of those to make sure that our journey and the compounding value creation that's created through that continues to be relevant and doesn't become functionally obsolete in an emerging future economy. I'm curious, it's really hard for the previous generation, whichever number it was, to be open to that. It's big change, it's scary. Maybe you coach in this area or talk to clients of yours. How do you help that previous generation be open to this? What I observe is there's a basically a complete lack of shared language across generations currently. And even if they're saying the same words, it means different things. It's kind of frustrating because I think the intention or what I would call the directionality of purpose actually is aligned, but they're not communicating in, in the same language and communicating it effectively. Funny story that my father told me before is when he was stepping up and taking over the family office and family business, his father, my grandfather, didn't stop coming into the office. And my grandfather was a pretty angry guy and he'd have these explosive episodes once in a while. 
And one day he was like, how do I know that this place is going to run all right when I'm no longer around? And then my father responded and he said, why don't you stop coming into the office and then you'll find out. (laughs) (laughs) That's just a really funny, but really relevant story about passing of the baton and letting go of control. And I think in multi-generational families, families want to prioritize family unity. Like oftentimes they'll say like, I've seen what money can do to families and how it can rip them apart. And I don't want that to happen. So what I'm going to do is promote family unity above all else. And so I'm going to create really rigid governance structures, top-down governance structures where family members have to come together in a room, make decisions together in order to move things forward. Very common. The paradoxical outcome there is that forcing family members to collaborate and make decisions together actually leads down a path where it creates an environment for conflict. And if the governance structures are really rigid, the only alternative is to end up suing each other. And that's often what ends up happening. I call this controlled collectivism. And the intention of those kind of strategies is family unity and multi-generational wealth preservation. But the byproduct is usually the absolute opposite. And so I think the antidote to this is prioritizing individual autonomy and creating the environment of essentially decentralized value creation and voluntary cooperation. One way to think about it is with a family office or enterprising family, they've built this empire that they've climbed a mountain and they're at the peak of the mountain. There's the power dynamics of figuring out who's going to be the next one to stand at the top and steward this mountain. But I think the much more powerful opportunity is empowering future generations to be like, check out all those other mountains. Where's the next mountain? What do you want to climb and what do you want your mountain to be about? And the really cool thing is you can take those legacy capabilities and leverage them as accelerants or empowering tools for emerging leaders to build their own capabilities and create value. It sounds like you've been successful in bringing in this change dynamic into your family. And I'm curious, just as context, how many people have pooled assets within the family? And what was it like for them to see you coming in and disrupting things? What's interesting is that families will grow really fast across generations, including Gen 6 now. The office serves around 175 different family members. It's four distinct family branches. My family branch and then my direct family, so my parents and my siblings, there's six siblings. So it's a relatively large family and then 13 grandchildren. But across the entire family, uh, 175 family members, the office manages around something like 250 distinct legal entities, files almost 2,000 tax returns a year. And one of the challenges is actually the increased administrative burden that comes with that, which eats up tremendous bandwidth, which means there's less bandwidth for the entrepreneurial priorities that created the success in the first place. And managing all that is really challenging. Multi-generational families are threatened by system entropy more than anyone else. As it becomes more complex and there's more personalities, the system's risk becomes greater and things can tend to break down. What I advise other families to do is integrate this concept of a decentralized family office, where you structurally create the opportunity for individuals of different family units to practice their own individual autonomy. To go back to your question, what was it like for me to take these ideas into our office? My philosophy around this stuff is definitely contrarian relative to wealth management industry. I think they're basically new ideas. I certainly have implemented a few things within our own office, but what I discovered, it's really challenging to do that as a family member. I'll give you an example. I'm a trustee of a trust that's for all of Gen 6, and the trust is designed to invest in their individual self-actualization. 
And the function of a trustee with regard to that trust is they should function more like a life coach. It's challenging for me to come in and play the role of a life coach to my nephews and nieces because then I have a relationship with my siblings as well. And so there's a lot of different weird dynamics. The dynamics really play a role. How are you navigating that? The reality is that hard problems like the financial problems are easy and the soft problems are really hard. Those interpersonal connections. The human problems. I think my skills in being a coach are certainly been helpful. It is harder to change things and disrupt from the inside. It almost has to be an external or decentralized thing. And actually, that's why I really enjoy working with other families, because I can come in like just completely clear of any of those existing biases or preconceived notions about power dynamics and things of that nature. Just completely objective when it's not your own family. But still be able to share my own experience as somebody that grew up around this and that has had the opportunity to observe a lot of data around it. Taylor, I'm curious, based on what you shared about your experience growing up, having really high expectations of yourself and what you could accomplish, despite your parents not seemingly setting those expectations for you, and then learning over time to individuate and really redefine success on your own terms. How is that experience manifesting in the conversations you're having with Generation 6 and your fiduciary responsibilities as trustee toward their individuation? A lot of it is repeating the wisdom that I learned from my father. So in conversations about money with my father, it was always communicated that money is simply a tool and nothing more than that. And also, you know, this idea that you know, if you want to make a million dollars, then find a way to help a million people. One challenge that I observed is that oftentimes people equate knowing how to deal with money with this idea of financial literacy, understanding budgets and compounding interest and all those things. All those technical things. That kind of education certainly has value, but I think fundamentally there's a layer below that, which is really the art and science of value creation that's important and understanding how value is created and then how it's captured in a way to make that value creation self-sustaining. I think also people generally misinterpret what wealth is. I don't know if you guys remember the cartoon DuckTales and Scrooge McDuck who had the vault full of gold coins and stuff. There's an assumption that there's a bank account with just tons of cash in it or a vault with a ton of jewels and gold coins. That's not the case. The wealth is tied up usually in essentially value creation machines. And it's really about taking care of those value creation machines and finding ways to compound the value that those machines are able to create. I often equate it to a mathematical function. So if you think about f of x, f is this operation that happens to an input and the input is x and it creates an output. And hopefully that output is more abundant than whatever the input was. When talking to future generations about what is value and what is wealth, wealth creation is really about building the f, building the value creation function. And this idea of wealth creation implies that wealth does not exist previously. You don't have an X, you don't have this capital input to put into anybody else's function. You just need to build the function first. And then that function can create an output and you can recycle your own output back in as an input to the function. I think that's a really important thing to communicate because fundamentally sustaining success across generations is about continuing to have that mentality of our job is to maintain and build new value creation functions. And I find that families who lose the 
entrepreneurial spirit and culture are ones that really prioritize wealth preservation through asset allocation of where do we put our capital inputs rather than thinking about how can we create new value creation functions. And the thing about maintaining a culture of entrepreneurship and value creation in a family is all it takes is for one generation to be void of an active value creator for that entrepreneurial spirit to leave the family. Because going back to the idea of emulation, people need to be able to have the opportunity to observe people that are grinding and actively struggling to create value for others. And they end up emulating those people. But once that's lost, it can be lost forever. Long-winded answer, but teaching them the fundamentals of value creation, rather than prioritizing financial literacy, it's really prioritizing how can you be of service to others and create value for them. And the byproduct of that is money. You've spoken about multi-generational abundance. Would you describe what that means and your vision around this idea? I think all of these principles, they don't just apply to wealthy families. I think they're universal. I just want to qualify that and also just acknowledgement that everyone's story is multi-generational. Even if your parents were first-generation immigrants that came to the U.S. with a quarter in their pocket and worked their ass off to be able to give you the opportunity to access opportunities that they didn't have. I mean, that's a multi-generational story. And I think it's the basis for the American dream and the founding of our country is this multi-generational compounding of human capital and the opportunities that come with that. I just wanted to acknowledge that this isn't some ideas or methodologies that's reserved for affluent families. I think it can be practiced universally. And this concept of multi-generational abundance or compounding human capital, it really goes back to just principles of human progress. If you think about compounding value creation or compounding innovation, the idea that we today are able to do things that previous generations weren't able to do because we have access to knowledge and technology that they didn't have access to. All the entrepreneurs today are actually building on top of other people's inventions and the knowledge that other people acquired. And I think this engine of, of compounding innovation is what accelerates human progress. That idea can be mapped back into the family. And the idea is let's prioritize compounding human capital. I was able to observe my father and my siblings doing things and leveraging the tools and techniques and knowledge that they had at that time, doing the best they can with the tools that they have. But through that observation, I've been able to gain that knowledge plus additional knowledge and those tools plus additional tools. So the expectation is though, I can do more with the opportunities that I have that the previous generations were capable of doing with their opportunities. And I think this idea of like compounding human capital and compounding value creation is really exciting because if I were to do a graph, a lot of times people will reference like shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. First generation creates the business, second generation stewards the business, and third generation, it ends up falling apart. There's another model where instead of empowering future generations to be stewards of what already exists, let's empower them to create the next version of that capability. Or in other words, let's empower their individual self-actualization and find out what they were meant to do on this planet. I think as a story of human progress, I think that's really exciting. Thanks for sharing your thoughts with us. There's a huge mindset aspect to what you're saying. Not only the concepts, but just being open and being creative really allows, I think, a lot of possibility. So it's exciting. Keep up that great work. And tell us, what's your next money conversation going to be and who is it going to be with? Right after this call, I'm getting on a call with a company that I work with. 
it's a weekly recurring call on capital formation. So really as a function, capital formation is similar to fundraising, but it's really more focused on partnership. In this call, we talk a lot about the psychology of money and the psychology of investment decision and how we can partner with people to build new capabilities. Money as a term is not necessarily in my daily vernacular, but every call that I have, whether it's with a startup founder or with another investor or with a family office, it's usually always focused on just the concept of value creation and that acknowledgement that money is a byproduct of value creation. Taylor, thank you for all that. Would you share with our listeners, how can they find you? You can ping me on LinkedIn or shoot me an email, taylor at belief.vc, T-A-Y-L-O-R at B-E-L-I-E-F dot V-C. Perfect. Taylor, thank you very much. It is not a surprise that high school principal of yours listened to your ideas. You've got a lot of really powerful ideas, practical ideas, and thank you so much for sharing that with us today on Money Tales. Yeah, thanks so much for the time. This has been fun. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time.